Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. We have a lot to go over in this video. I'm excited. So I put a poll out just a day ago. It has almost 3,000 votes so far. And it's if you guys own any of AT&T. So if you own any shares of it, yes. You know, if you don't know. And over half, 55% said yes, they own some AT&T. So obviously, a lot of people here like dividends. AT&T is one of the most recognizable, biggest dividend-paying companies that offers a very attractive yield right now. Now, I titled this video, The Terribly Sad Story of AT&T. And I know there's some people that are confused. What is sad about this company, right? It seems to be going in a decent direction, pays a good dividend. You know, it doesn't have an extremely high payout ratio or anything. So what is terribly sad? Well, the story of this company is a story of extreme mismanagement, bad decisions, bad investments, and things that have led to a subpar performance over a very long period of time. If I go to my portfolio, there's companies like Verizon that are competitors to AT&T that have vastly outperformed AT&T over the past 10 years. So as you can see, I own quite a bit of AT&T in comparison to my portfolio, of course. So about $2,500 worth. I'm up $400 on it. But even so, what I wanted to do was just take an honest look at this company and give you a summary as best as I can. This is a giant conglomerate. There's not any one person that knows everything about AT&T, but I'm going to try to summarize what's going on and lay out the story of where this company has came from. On a side note, other things I want to talk about in this video, I have to mention this. Peloton released a commercial, an advertisement. This was a 30 second commercial and we're going to watch it later in the show. This commercial is responsible for dropping the stock 10% in one day. And it's blown up on social media. You can see here the Wall Street Journal is reporting on a Peloton commercial, a corny 30-second commercial. So I'm going to be looking at that, giving you my reaction to it, seeing what's going on. And I think that'll be fun to look at as well. And then, of course, after all of this, like always, I have a bunch of different questions that I'm going to answer, some really good ones. So I've had a lot of them come in. There's some that I think are very interesting. So you can stick around for that as well. Now, like I said, AT&T is, is one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a gigantic telecom company, but it's not just a telecom like Verizon. It's a conglomerate. It owns a lot of media properties. And what we're looking at here is an interview. The person on the left there is Randall Stevenson. He is the CEO of AT&T. And I don't want to just lay out all the things that AT&T has done incorrectly or poorly. I want to show both sides of it. So I'm going to let him talk for a bit and explain the direction he took with the company what he thinks the influence it has and the direction it's going and he's going to lay out a positive case here. He's going to lay out a bull case here. Because if, if you just reflect on what exists within Warner Media, it's an amazing set of capabilities and assets. It is, is one of the largest scaled TV and film production houses, studios in the world. Just for people that might not know, AT&T owns Warner Media. But really... Uh, there's just a couple that might be able to compare to them. They have an intellectual property library that is as deep and as broad as anybody's, covering all genres that you could conceive of. Think about HBO, the tastemaker brands within HBO and how unique that asset is. I, I think unrivaled relationships with critical talent around the industry. 
Now think about taking that and standing up a digital platform, which is the play that's being run by John Stinky and his team. A digital platform, HBO Max will be the name of it, and we'll be introducing it on October 29th. It's going to be really exciting. This is going to be different. This is not Netflix. This is not Disney. This is not Hulu. This is different. Standing up a digital platform and driving fast penetration through the customer relationships that you own in this distribution business. We have 170 million customer relationships, whether it's pay TV, whether it's uh, our broadband service or our mobility service particularly. See what he's saying there? We have 170 million different points of contact, different ways to distribute our content. So he, he starts off saying, well, we have the content, we have you know, all these connections to these people that are, are great content creators, they're the best in the industry. We all have all of that with Warner Media, some of the best content in the world, which I agree with him on there. That's HBO, they make a lot of high-end content. But then they have a, a distribution center through their telecom section of it, 170 million points of contact. And this continues on. And so standing this up and driving penetration through that distribution platform, we think is a very powerful opportunity. We have 5,500 retail stores where we touch customers every day. And in fact, if you just go through the numbers, we touch these customers 3.2 billion times every year. Do you think you can drive penetration of this kind of product fast through that? And if you want just a couple of data points, we've really had the business uh, and begun integrating it for about a year. We, we had to keep the businesses separate after the trial until we got through the appellate process. So we're about a year into this. And just the old traditional HBO product, in the course of a little over a year, AT&T is now already, by order of magnitude, the largest distributor of HBO in the United States. In fact, if you go to the number two distributor, our penetration is 67% higher than the number two distributor. Driving through mobile, driving through broadband, driving through the pay TV service. The direct TV penetration of HBO is, is at industry standard and getting better and better. To another data point, DISH uh, in the second quarter did a hard drop of HBO. Uh, they said, we're not going to carry HBO anymore. There's a dispute on pricing. They dropped HBO. One of the largest distributors of HBO drops them in the second quarter. HBO grew 3% in the second quarter. How? Power distribution. And so, uh, look, I mean, you just put this all together. We are convinced the old saying, content is king. I am a, an evangelical believer in that. But we also believe distribution matters. We've always been big believers in distribution and the power of it. And that's what we're trying to pull together. Okay, so there you have it. That is the CEO of AT&T. This is pretty recent. This is an interview that he did at Goldman Sachs, and he's laying out his bull case for it. He's saying that AT&T has great assets as far as content is concerned. It has HBO, which I think he's correct there. HBO makes really good content, and they're creating HBO Max, which even expands that. But then they don't only have the content, they have the distribution through the other parts of their company that they own, the telecom part of it. So he talks later on about having both of these, he thinks it has a strategic advantage. Combining both the content and the distribution, this company, AT&T, has both of them. They want to combine them together and compete that way, and he thinks it will give them a specific advantage over other companies. Now, Randall there, the CEO does a, a great job of painting this this pretty bright picture with AT&T. He's showing his vision of it, what he thinks he's doing, the strategic direction that he's going. And that's what he's supposed to do. He's a cheerleader for the company. He's showing out his vision. He wants it to be successful. He's saying the direction and the advantage that he thinks it has. And if you go to the year graph here, and I just look at the performance line of AT&T, it's just generally gone up for the past year. 
It's just gone up and up and up. We're up like 28% in the past year since December 10th of 2018. So this company has gone up quite a bit over the past year, but that has not been the case always with it. Over a long period of time, AT&T has forfeited lots of advantages that it used to hold over other companies. Over a longer period of time, AT&T has severely lagged both its competitors and just the market in general. If you compare this graph to the S&P 500, the S&P 500 has vastly outperformed AT&T. Same with Verizon, same with Comcast. Put any comparable company to AT&T and it's likely underperformed it over the past 10 to 15 years. And there's a couple people that have noticed this, and they decided to take action with it. Here enters Elliott Management. They write to AT&T an open letter. They are activist investors, and they are saying, we are writing to you on behalf of Elliott Associates and Elliott International. Elliott owns $3.2 billion of common stock and economic equivalents of AT&T. The large scale of our investment reflects our deep conviction in the extraordinary value opportunity realized at AT&T today. So like I said, Elliott Group, this group that invested $3.2 billion into AT&T, they are an activist investor. This letter is called Activating AT&T is what they're, they're titling this whole operation, their goals. Um, and this is different than you might be thinking about. You've probably heard about passive investing and active investing. Passive investing is when you just invest in like ETFs and, and index funds. Active investing is like when you go out and buy a mutual fund. This is different definitions here. So take those definitions, push them out of your mind for a minute. This type of activist investing is different. With hedge funds, when you passively invest, that means that you go and you pick the holdings that you want. Like exactly like what I'm doing. You just pick out different holdings that you want. You buy a portion of the company because you think the company will appreciate. You buy that company, you hold on to it. It goes up in value and then you sell. You don't lobby for change. You don't interact with it. You don't go onto the board and try to change the direction of the company. If you're just a hedge fund that buys out a, a stake in a company and you're there for the ride, that is a passive investment. So what they're doing here is not passive. They're buying $3.2 billion of AT&T and now, since they own that stake in it, they are using that stake to say, hey, we have some skin in the game. We are a pretty large shareholder in this. And now we have a voice. We're going to lobby for changes. We're going to look at the company, see how it can improve, and share our strong opinion on what we think should happen for it to improve. That's what they said, our deep conviction in the extraordinary value opportunity realizable at AT&T today. So they're saying the reason that we bought this stake is because we think that this stock can double. You know, we think it can go up. Later on in the letter, they say that they think it can go above $60 a share by the end of 2021, which right now it's at $38 a share. So that's important to keep in mind that the reason that these hedge funds, the reason that they buy portions of these companies and they're, you know, they're activists, they want change. They're doing that for a positive reason, but that doesn't mean the company, the people, the CEO and the people already on the board of AT&T, usually they don't like having involvement with activist investors. They just want to do their job. They don't want some outside firm analyzing everything they do, overseeing it and saying that they're doing everything wrong. But this is a type of thing where the activist investor says they're looking out for the shareholder and sometimes it can cause fights. Sometimes they work together well. 
we're seeing how this one's playing out with AT&T. Regardless, in this letter, you can tell that the Elliott Group, this hedge fund, has done a tremendous amount of detailed analysis over AT&T on this troubled past that they've had, this really sad history that they've had. And this is what I'm going to be using to share some of the things that they've stumbled on. So before going into this sad story of AT&T, the, the parts where they've really stumbled, I'll go ahead and read a paragraph from this that outlines their goal with this letter. They say, the purpose of today's letter is to share our thoughts on how AT&T can improve its business and realize a historic increase in value to its shareholders. Elliott believes that through readily achievable initiatives, increased strategic focus, improved operation efficiency, a formal capital allocation framework, and enhanced leadership and oversight, AT&T can achieve $60 plus per share value by the end of 2021. This represents a 65% plus upside to today's share price, a rare opportunity for any company, let alone one of the world's largest. So you guys can decide. Does this sound like this hedge fund is a, a negative for AT&T or a positive? Over half of you own this stock. They want to increase the value of it by 65% plus. So let's go ahead and look at some of the things that they've outlined. The first thing to look at is AT&T's historic performance. You can I have it zoomed in on a price chart here. The green line is AT&T. The gray line is the S&P 500. Even accounting for dividends, the S&P 500 is up over 100% over AT&T. So it's, you gained an additional 100% on your return if you invested just in the S&P 500 over AT&T over the past 10 years. They say, what has attracted our attention, as well as the attention of other shareholders from large institutions to individual AT&T employees, has been the prolonged and substantial underperformance of AT&T as an investment relative to its potential. Over the past 10 years, for example, AT&T, a bellwether in all senses of the word, has not only failed to keep pace with the broader market, but has actually underperformed by over 150 percentage points. This underperformance also holds as AT&T's total share return. That's including dividends. Over the past decade, AT&T's total share return has lagged the S&P 500s by well over 100 percentage points. In fact, AT&T's underperformance has been so severe and disappointing that it was dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average in 2015, an index that has included AT&T and its predecessor since 1939. This underperformance has been both profound and persistent. AT&T's total stock return has underperformed across all relevant benchmarks and timeframes for more than 10 years, with the exception of a small catch-up. Over the last year following the company's 27% share price decline in 2018 and coinciding with Elliott's large purchase of this stock. So the one thing they give credit to, the 27% the increase, is them, Elliott, purchasing the stock. That gives a lot of people hope that, you know, somebody's going in to shake things up and actually has a strategic vision for this company. Now, what they did is you can tell that they've done a lot of research on the, the history of AT&T. This letter goes into great detail of how the company, up until about the year 2000, built itself up to one of the biggest companies in the world. And the strategies that they used to do that were pretty interesting. You can read this entire letter at activatingatnt.com. But I'll go and skip over some of the background here and go to the part where they've messed up and made some huge blunders. This is where the terribly sad part of this story comes in. These specific mistakes that AT&T has done has cost it severely. One of them was T-Mobile. If some of you can recall, AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile and this deal did not go well for AT&T. It says possibly the most damaging deal was the one not done. In March of 2011, AT&T attempted to acquire T-Mobile for $39 billion. 
At the time, T-Mobile was a distant fourth-place competitor struggling to keep pace with AT&T and Verizon. Not long after the announcement, it became obvious that the government would block the deal and the parties terminated. Unfortunately for AT&T in the industry, AT&T paid the largest breakup fee of all time and provided T-Mobile with seven-year roaming deal and the invaluable spectrum it needed to develop from a thin-struggling competitor into the thriving force it is today. So just to give some context there. They wanted to buy T-Mobile for $39 billion. Now I think T-Mobile is worth over $60 billion, like $66 billion. The deal that was terminated, they had to pay $3 billion to T-Mobile plus the seven-year roaming deal to T-Mobile. That was part of the breakup agreement as well. So they gave this relatively small company, T-Mobile, this enormous payout in the breakup of this deal. And it says, over the following years, T-Mobile went on to introduce a number of disruptive initiatives that upended the wireless industry. In addition to the internal and external distractions it caused itself, AT&T's failed takeovers capitalized a viable competitor for years to come. So they're saying not only did you fail to purchase T-Mobile, but you cost yourself billions and billions of dollars. You cost yourself this roaming deal that was worth billions of dollars, and you took this relatively small, distant competitor, T-Mobile, and you gave them the capital and the funding to be able to expand into this extremely flourishing, annoying company to you. This one that is creating all these initiatives and doing all these different deals that you're now having to react to. And you're the one who helped create them. So they took a competitor and they made the competitor stronger. That was the deal that they did with T-Mobile. Next up is DirecTV. If you don't know, AT&T owns DirecTV. It says, the next large deal AT&T attempted did close, but with damaging results. In 2014, AT&T announced the $67 billion acquisition of DirecTV, becoming the largest pay TV operator in the country. Do you know what was happening around 2014 when AT&T was buying DirecTV? That was when everybody in the world was leaving cable TV to go to streaming. That's about right when they were purchasing DirecTV for $67 billion. It says, notwithstanding AT&T leadership's assertion that, quote, pay TV is very good and a durable business, unquote, when the transaction was announced, the pay TV ecosystem had been under immense pressure since the deal closed. In fact, trends are continuing to erode with AT&T's premium TV subscribers in rapid decline as the industry, particularly satellite, struggles mightily. Unfortunately, it has become clear that AT&T acquired DirecTV at the absolute peak of the linear TV market. Now, this is their their way of saying, I mean, I think they're trying to say this as nice as possible, but also pretty direct that DirecTV was about as bad as a deal as you can get. They bought it at the absolute peak of the linear TV market. So this pay TV ecosystem, everybody was switching to Netflix and streaming and these different companies. Nobody wanted to go to DirecTV at this time. DirecTV that they bought for $67 billion is probably worth half as much right now probably worth around $30 billion is what they could actually sell that section of their company for. And then there's Time Warner. In 2016, AT&T announced its most significant bet, the $109 billion acquisition of Time Warner. Time Warner is a spectacular company representing a collection of some of the world's premier media assets, and it remains a strong and valuable franchise today. However, despite nearly 600 days passing between signing and closing, 
and more than a year passing since, AT&T has yet to articulate a clear strategic rationale for why AT&T needs to own Time Warner. While it is too soon to tell whether AT&T can create value with Time Warner, we remain cautious on the benefits of this combination. We think that after $109 billion in three years, we should be seeing some manifestation of the clear strategic benefits by now. So far, this is the softest criticism they've made out of these different merger and acquisitions. So T-Mobile, I mean, was a complete blunder. DirecTV was just a bad deal. Why did they buy DirecTV at peak valuation? There's there's no reason for that. What they're saying with Time Warner is, yeah, at least you bought something really good. You know, you, you bought something good. It really, I don't think that Time Warner has gone down in value since they bought it. So I think it's worth just as much as it is when they purchased it. Now, this letter came out in September. Obviously, AT&T says that they're creating HBO Max. They could not create HBO Max without Time Warner because Time Warner owns HBO. So what they decided to do was is combine DirecTV, Time Warner, and every other bit of content they have and create HBO Max. And that's what we have here. And they're hoping that this can save them. So a lot of this comes down to how well you think HBO Max is going to do. If it can really compete with Netflix and Disney and Apple TV and Amazon Prime and all these different services, if HBO Max can become a go-to service that most people have in their household. Now, they've already addressed the price. They say that it's going to be the same price as HBO right now, so $15 a month. There's people on both sides of this argument. While we have this activist investor here, Elliot Associates, and they believe that AT&T can get up to $60 plus by 2021, Moffitt, Craig Moffitt, who is a, an analyst that knows the ins and outs of AT&T, he has a price of $25 a share on it right now. He has a rare sell rating on it. So he's saying that he would not hold on to AT&T right now. He doesn't know how it's going to take all of these different declining businesses and turn them around. He doesn't think that they can cut their way to greatness is the way that he puts it. This is Craig Moffat in an interview here talking about how he thinks that HBO Max needs to be priced at $17 a month. And there's no way that they can really make a lot of money doing this because they'd have to give up so many different licensing contracts and other things that they need to price this highly. And then he talks about with these other competitors like Disney Plus coming in, how that has complicated things. It has to be at $17 plus. So if that's $17 plus, what does that do to your calculation? I mean, do you look at that and say then it was it was a worthy transaction? Does it change it, the math of all of this? Disney's six ninety nine pricing is a big problem for AT&T because... AT&T's HBO business can't be cheaper on, as a direct-to-consumer service than it is on Comcast and Charter and everywhere else. Hmm. So you have to be at $17 plus. I suspect when they, when they bought Time Warner and they contemplated a direct-to-consumer play, their assumption was that was where the market would be. When Disney came out at $6.99, it throws a hand grenade into their plans because how do you price at $17 plus when Disney's at $6.99? Um, and, and Netflix is basically at the price and, of HBO. And, 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 or, or, that's right. So, so the challenge, and, and, and you can see the challenge they're facing, right? HBO right now reaches about 30% of U.S. households. Mm -hmm. In a best-case scenario over the next couple of years, including HBO Max, they'll get to eventually 30% of households paying about the same thing as they are today. So that business will be about the same business it is today. But in the process, you will have burned Turner and, uh, and the TV studio to the ground because the licensing revenues that you used to get externally are now just being pumped into HBO Max and Turner channels are gonna be distributed 
in a way similar to that. Is, so it's going to be tough to make one plus one plus one equal more than one. So he's obviously very bearish on the stock right now, has a sell rating on it. He explains his thesis on all of that. He thinks that they're pretty much, they're, they're not growing. He thinks that AT&T with HBO, they're not growing the pie. They're not going to really grow the net number of people watching their their content what they're doing is just shifting it all around from one service to another so they're losing customers they're keeping it around the same and they're costing themselves money in the process because they're taking contracts of where they can license it out to other people but they're not going to be getting that income instead they're going to be distributing it themselves instead they're going to be distributing it themselves now the follow-up question they ask here i think is good because that's essentially what disney is doing they're taking their content off of everything else that they earn money in hopes that they can put it into a streaming platform at&t really isn't doing much original here they're just following the same strategy that disney's doing right now so she asks well isn't disney doing the same thing is disney um at 699 risking cannibalizing its own revenue streams too sure sure and I guess, are they just willing to take the hit because they want this to get big and they want to hit the... They're, they're making... It's funny how the three players that have that have announced strategies, right. Comcast with what they've said about their NBC strategy, okay. AT&T with what they've said about their HBO Max strategy, and Disney, have taken very different, different views, routes, right? right. And, and do those collide at some point? It, it's hard to imagine that all three of them are right. AT&T's is is to some extent a... Think of Comcast as the most conservative strategy. Mm -hmm. um, Disney's as by far the most aggressive, and AT&T somewhere in the middle. Uh, and Comcast is talking about, well, we can do this with AVOD or advertising supported without a subscription, but they're, they're mostly thinking about, let's preserve the status quo. Right. AT&T is doing something in the middle. There's like it, like Comcast, they've started to pull back some content and move it to their direct-to-consumer service. That means foregoing some licensing revenues they otherwise would have gotten from players like Netflix. Um, but it, it is not an abrupt. But Disney's change. pulling like the Disney Amazon saying, slash uh, Walmart strategy of just we want to get make up for this in mass. We're but gonna, but we're importantly, Disney I think is thinking about it in a in a in a nuanced way, which is. The strategy for the sports business for ESPN is completely different than the strategy oh, separate, for right. the entertainment. Out of the different strategies there between AT&T, Comcast, and Disney, I like Disney's the most. I think that they their streaming service, I think, is just really good. They entered in at a great price point. Disney, I'm probably the most bullish on. AT&T, I think my personal thought is, I know that this analyst has a very negative, bearish outlook on it. He has a, a much lower price point of $25 a share on it. Uh, I have a pretty positive outlook on AT&T. So that's just my personal opinion. I think that they'll do okay. The thing that I think that he's discounting is I think that people as a whole are going to consume more and more content and they're going to make that a bigger part of their lives as time goes on. So I think in five years and in 10 years, People are going to be subscribed to HBO, Netflix, Disney. A lot of people just have all of them. They'll allocate $50 a month, $40 a month of their budget to all these different streaming services. So I don't necessarily think it's quite as big of a competition. He thinks that because Disney's priced so much lower, that means that a lot less people are going to sign up for AT&T. That might be the case, but I know a lot of people are just going to have both of them. Okay, now moving on from AT&T, I have to talk about this for a minute. The Peloton commercial. 
this 30 second commercial, it caused the company's stock, their entire market cap to drop 10% as a result for this commercial. So if you haven't seen it, get ready. I'm going to play the commercial. I'll probably get the the video uh, copyright, whatever, for the music playing in the background, but whatever, this is worth it. Okay, you ready? Yes. Now. A Peloton? Give it up for our first time ride. All right, first ride. I'm a little nervous, but excited. Let's do this. Five days in a row. You surprised? I am. 6 a.m. Yay. Rising with the sun. That was totally worth it. Let's go, Grace in Boston. 50 rides. She just a year ago, I didn't realize how much this would change me. Thank you. This holiday, give the gift of Peloton. That's it. That's the commercial. That resulted in Peloton, the company, shares dropping 10% in one day. I will say, this freezing on this last frame, that is a very nice little home they got there. I guess if they're buying like a $2,000, $3,000 bike with a $40 a month membership, that they can afford nice stuff. So I, I guess it makes sense. Now, why did this commercial drop the stock price 10% in a day? Well, obviously, I don't know if you missed it, but that commercial was, you know, it was misogynist. It was uh, sexist. uh, A lot of just crazy undertones. She's trapped with this guy. And obviously, she's trying to escape. A lot of stuff going on here. So let's go ahead and look through some of the journalism and reporting on this. Now, obviously, we're looking at a Wall Street Journal article here. The Wall Street Journal wrote about this Peloton commercial, and not just the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times did, as well as Bloomberg and other financial journals. But this type of thing, this this type of dynamic with a commercial like this, I think it takes a different type of reporting than the Wall Street Journal. I think we need to go to the experts that really understand these type of events and can give a, a better look into them. So I'm going to go over to BuzzFeed here. You know, there's not many people that are able to top BuzzFeed's reporting on this. So we have Julia Reinstein, a BuzzFeed news reporter here, with the article, Peloton is defending its ad, which people call dystopian and like a horror movie. And really, she outlines the whole story here. Sitting atop her $2,245 Peloton exercise bike, a petite brunette woman wears a smile on her lips, but an SOS signal on her eyes. You don't get that type of writing in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, I'm a little nervous, but excited. She says to her phone camera in an ad that people online have said doesn't look unlike a hostage video. The commercial, set to Tall Backman's 1991 hit wonder, She's So High, tells the tale This commercial tells a tale. It tells the tale of a husband who buys his wife a Peloton for Christmas. She seems completely surprised. She apparently hadn't asked for one and or has never cycled before and takes videos of her fitness journey, eventually premiering it for her spouse. A year ago, I didn't realize how much it would change me. She says in the end, giving no indication of how she has changed. And then it goes on showing examples of the ridicule that this commercial has received on Twitter. This guy here, Siraj, saying, Nothing says maybe you should lose a few pounds like gifting your already rail-thin life partner a Peloton. Um, I think that's interesting. A lot of people say, you know, they, they bring up that she's already thin. And they're ridiculing the advertisement for an exercise machine a thou- that costs thousands of dollars for her being thin already before using it. I don't think this is a lose-lose for Peloton because if she was way overweight and then she was gifted this thing and then she rode it for a year and she was thin, I think that there would be people that have a lot more issue with that. So Peloton, this commercial, although I think it's a pretty dumb commercial, her filming her workouts and then presenting it to her husband at the end of a year, kind of a dumb commercial in my opinion. But I will defend them 
that this is a lose-lose situation here. Another image that was passed around is her face when she's saying that she's starting writing the Peloton compared with the Get Out movie, which is the Jordan Peele movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a pretty good movie, but it's people trying to escape. I don't want to give away the movie, but it's people trying to escape and they're comparing her facial expressions to Get Out. Now, of course, we can laugh at the Twitter memes and the things going around mocking this commercial. The actor that played the husband in this commercial has actually spoken out and said that, well, that's great. I play one role and now I'm the face of misogynism and sexism. So that's not a fun thing to have happen. On top of that, Peloton shares, these are real things happening. The shares fell 15% Tuesday through Thursday, erasing nearly $1.6 billion in market value. So that's a that's a real amount of money. $1.6 billion of market value, over 15% of the company's value. Now, the Wall Street Journal points out that this has happened before with Nike, Gillette, Pepsi. Remember Nike had the, I think it was the Colin Kaepernick advertisement. Gillette had the one that was like, I don't know, something about guys being aware of what they're doing or something. All of these different ones. The difference between Peloton and what they did and Nike and Gillette and Pepsi is I feel like Nike and Gillette and Pepsi, they tried to make their advertisements have social commentary, right? They're trying to go in and and take a whole social aspect, their marketing team. It was very calculated. It was intentional. I don't think that Peloton tried to do that. They just made an advertisement that was weird, kind of a dumb one. Uh, Her facial expressions do look like she's really concerned to use the spike, which is an odd thing. But they weren't trying to make any kind of social commentary, and they just got wrapped up in this whole thing. Now, Peloton, they responded to this whole thing. A representative from Peloton said, While we're disappointed in how some have misinterpreted this commercial, we are encouraged by and grateful for the outpouring of support we've received from those who understand what we are trying to communicate. Okay, so there you see the criticisms plus Peloton's response. But I also have to mention this part here. Ryan Reynolds, who is one of my favorite actors in Hollywood, I just... I like him. He's a funny guy. He went and he actually contacted. This is the wife that was the actress in the Peloton commercial. And he hired her to do his own commercial. And here it is. This gin is really smooth. Yeah. We can get you another one if you like. You're safe here. To new beginnings. To To new new beginnings. There you go. It's gonna be a fun night. There you go. Take this too. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. You look great, by the way. So there's his aviation gin commercial and one of the girls saying you're safe here like she was trying to escape in the the Peloton commercial. And I'll mention that the title of Ryan Reynolds commercial is The Gift That Doesn't Give Back and the title of the Peloton commercial was The Gift That Gives Back. So that's what Ryan Reynolds is a master at, comedy. And I think this is a cool thing because he took a really awkward situation for this woman in this commercial and gave her an opportunity to do something to almost give the whole thing comedic relief. So good on Ryan Reynolds there. Okay, let's get to some questions here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. You can also message me on Twitter, Instagram, or leave a comment in a YouTube video. The first one says, Hi, Joseph. Regarding your stance on not caring about capital gains and focusing on dividend income, I have a hypothetical question. If you had a stock, which fundamentally was very solid and the revenue keeps growing year over year with the same earnings per share and other key factors like dividend growth, etc., 
Yet investors and hedge funds, for whatever reason, are continually selling and the stock price keeps falling with no upswing in sight. Would you keep that holding since the company's fundamentals aren't changing? Yeah, this is an easy one. So if you liked the company when it was at $40 a share and the company's fundamentals were very strong and you liked purchasing it at $40 a share, if it falls to $20 a share, you should absolutely love that deal. The fundamentals of the company hasn't changed and now you're able to buy the company for half the price. That should be something that you should be wanting to put more money in to take advantage of that more. The thing I like particularly about this situation with dividends is if you buy a solid company that the share price falls and it's still a solid company, it's going to keep giving you that return in dividends. Yeah, in that situation, I definitely keep buying the company if it's fallen, but the fundamentals, all the things that you listed off are the same. I would investigate the reasons of why it's falling though, because usually if people are exiting the company, if hedge funds are selling it, there's a reason why. There has to be some reason why. So if you determine that it's just kind of a temporary artificial reason, like that Peloton ad, which is a ridiculous reason to sell a company is because some people on Twitter got angry about it. That is a great example of a company that has fallen for completely artificial and temporary reasons. Uh, the underlining business hasn't changed at all. It's just you know a, a phase that it's going to go through and it will temporarily have suppressed share prices so if it's something like that then yes i would buy more of the company if i believed in the the company to begin with i'm not saying peloton's one that i haven't really looked at the fundamentals of the company but um if the reasons are that they're selling it are fundamental reasons then you have to be more wary of that now on your first sentence of this though you say regarding your stance on not caring about capital gains and focusing on dividend income that's a little bit i think i gave off the wrong impression in my last video so I focus on dividend income, but that's not to say that I don't care at all about capital gains. The way I look at it, and I thought of an analogy, this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it illustrates the point somewhat. I look at it as if you're trying to become healthier and lose a little weight. Uh, to me, focusing on the dividends and the fundamentals of the business is like eating right and, and exercising. And focusing on the capital gains is like weighing yourself on the scale. So if your goal is to become healthier, to lose some weight, that type of thing, if every single day you're weighing yourself every single day over and over again, that can actually be discouraging if you're trying to lose weight. Because even if you're eating right and exercising, your weight can still fluctuate up and down. It's not going to be a perfect linear scale downwards, you know. Uh, it might take time and the scale isn't always the best way to determine whether you're actually healthy or not. So I look at it the same way. I focus on my dividend income. I see that growing over time. In this analogy, I think the weight loss will follow. I think the capital gains will follow with this portfolio. And you've seen that been happening. I'm making like about $2,000 with dividends and then I'm up $9,000 overall. So I don't have to pay attention to the capital gains. I just focus on the dividends and the capital gains will happen with their own time. That's not the thing that I'm focused on though. But that doesn't also say that I don't care about them, right? It's just something that I'm not putting my focus in. Okay, so the next question, this is one, this is a longer comment actually, but I thought it was important to go over it because in my last video, I talked about the FIRE movement, financial independence and retire early. And I talked about how, from what I've seen from it, most people I think have good intentions and they're doing a, a good thing with the FIRE movement. I think overall it's a positive thing, but I do think that there's a group of people, a subset of this community that take this goal of retiring early and they sacrifice the present to get there. 
They sacrifice important parts of life to get there. And so I was trying to distinguish that, yes, I want to, you know, be financially independent, of course. I want to retire early, but I don't want to give up really important aspects that I do see some people giving up. Now, this seemed to upset some people in the FIRE community. Um, I got a couple messages and they thought that I misrepresented the FIRE community. So let me go ahead and read one of the comments here. This is from C-Pain. He says, as always, great video, Joseph. I know the intent of the video is not to do a deep dive on fire, but I think you unfairly gave your viewers a misleading slash incomplete picture of why people choose fire. Also, fire is not a trend that started with millennials. This lifestyle has existed for decades, but it is only now getting more recognition because it has been publicized and scrutinized on the internet. For the vast majority of individuals, FIRE doesn't involve missing out on the good things in life simply to retire before age 65. FIRE focuses on reevaluating what truly makes a person happy in life and focusing one's energy, efforts, and income on that. Many individuals involved in FIRE are simply normal people who make a conscious effort to be more responsible with their money than the average consumer. Like you mentioned, these people usually retire early, but many folks choose to work part-time later in life at lower stress jobs for the sake of enjoyment than for income. Fire individuals take vacations, but they are likely to do so off-peak travel time so that they can avoid the crowds and avoid paying extra 30% plus on airfare and lodging, or they might leverage credit card travel bonuses to offset the cost of airfare. As far as going out to eat, fire people do socialize and do go out to eat with friends, but they're not going out to eat at restaurants and fast food stops multiple times a week. They find intrinsic and extrinsic value in learning to cook meals with the home and family and friends versus paying a huge markup at restaurants. Fire people also do get married and have weddings, but they don't drop tens of thousands of dollars on weddings just because most of their friends have. Overall, fire people strive to appreciate what they have in life within their means instead of keeping up with the Joneses and trying to achieve that next short-lived high when we get when we buy something new. Ultimately, FIRE is about being more strategic with how and when you spend your money so that you have the flexibility to be financially independent later in life, as well as not stressed out about money, similar to how you mentioned making a large down payment on your home to have a lower mortgage. The bigger focus I wish you would have mentioned was the financial independence. In a down economy with high unemployment, FIRE people mitigate a lot of the risk by already having a sizable and liquid emergency fund and habitually living a low-cost lifestyle. Lastly, being FIRE and having an emergency fund empowers a person to switch jobs if needs be. If you don't like your work environment or your company suffers a wave of massive layoffs, chances are that FIRE folks will have less stress about it compared to someone else who wastes 70% of their net income fulfilling their wants. Okay, so that's the whole thing there. So First of all, thank you for writing that comment, C. Paynes. I appreciate you writing in. Um, I don't think that I misrepresented the FIRE community. So obviously, I didn't do a big overview of it. I read your entire comment, and I think that you are a great ambassador of the movement. You explain the whole purpose of it, the reasons behind it, and a lot of the benefits that it has, right? And a lot of those, like if this is a Venn diagram of my channel, what I'm explaining to people and how this works in the fire movement, I'd say that there's a, a really large overlap between the two. What I'm showing is people have the opportunity to accumulate assets that put money back into their pocket, right? Over time, you can accumulate these assets to actually pay you back money rather than taking money out of your pocket every single month. So that's the whole purpose of this channel, to show that that's possible, that people can make a goal to do that. And it often leads to more financial independence and being able to retire earlier than other people. So I don't have any problem with the core of the FIRE movement. That's no issue there. But I've been on the internet a long time, specifically in financial forums, and 
I've seen repeatedly through the fire movement instances of people, I think, taking it to an extreme that is not healthy. And I think that this, is, this isn't everybody. This is a small subset. So I'll keep giving that little caveat there that this is a subset of people in this community. The whole purpose that I bring this up is to just say that I don't think that you should halt or damn the progress of every other part of your life in pursuit of money. I think that you need to find a way to make it so the multiple parts of your life, especially the important parts of of companionship, relationships, friendship, that type of stuff, that needs to go along with the FIRE movement. So that is the key thing that I'm saying here, is to not stop the progression of other parts of your life just in pursuit of your financial progression. And you might say, well, you know, that doesn't really happen. Most people aren't doing that. I've seen examples of it. We can look at one here. This is a post that is a year old now, so this isn't really recent, but this is on the Financial Independence Forum. So this is amongst people that they've upvoted this comment 3,200 times. So it's not like nobody really agreed with this and they just quickly downvoted it. A lot of people thought that this is a message that needs to get out within the FIRE community. So uh, of course, this isn't an anecdotal experience, but this user posted explaining his warning to other people, explaining why he's trying to warn other people. He says, I lost the love of my life because of financial independence. Don't be me. He says, I should be clear. It's because I obsessed over financial independence and ignored my life goals. Together for seven years, living together for most of it. So he had a significant other that he was living with for almost seven years, right? A a pretty close companion at that time. She was perfect for me and was also very frugal. I had it all. I read the stickied post, find the life you want to live and save for it, or whatever that's called. But I didn't take it to heart. I thought I was doing this. I didn't understand. I was so wrong. I was blind. I was living the life I wanted to, but I was ignoring the life that my partner wanted. I didn't want to spend money with her and do the things she really valued. I didn't buy plane tickets to go visit her family when she was desperately wanting me to come. My whole life, I also said that I wanted kids. Then I discovered financial independence and it changed my mind because they were too expensive. And he says, I refused to buy nicer furniture for our apartment and made her embarrassed about our place and not comfortable in her own home. And so he goes on just explaining the things that he did that were not in line with her goals. Over and over, I made the mistake and we drifted apart. She wasn't asking for much, just for things she really valued. She's frugal. I was selfish and I lost sight of the fact that I always wanted kids. So even though at one point he wanted kids, he decided against it in seeking financial independence. And I think that it's good to have financial independence. Nobody's arguing against that. My only message here is there are some people like this person right here that he posted this on Reddit. It has over 400 comments and responses. And many of them are people that are saying, yeah, I saw myself getting too far to that obsession level as well, right? I was pushing it too far. I was really focusing on this goal and nothing else. I just think that you need to be careful with it, that When you make goals financially, make sure that you're working towards those goals, but you're also not halting progression in other aspects of your life. To me, the the things that I'd rather have a lot more than the money are my, you know, my spouse, my kids, family, that type of thing. It brings a lot more joy than, than having my portfolio. I'll just say that. Having both of them is preferable. I think that you can have both of those goals at once. I don't think that you have to forfeit one for the other. People can become financial independent and retire early, and they can do that while progressing with friendships and family and that type of stuff at the same time. So that's really my only concern with the FIRE movement. The only thing that I've seen is a real downside that some people, I think, get a little too far into. So everything that you've said in your your message here, Paynes, I, I agree with. 
I think overall it's a great movement. Obviously, that's a lot of what this channel is, is helping people move to financial independence. I just think of, okay, if I'm building up all these assets, if I'm investing and I'm, I'm trying to build up this wealth, what is the purpose of that? What is the end goal here? Is it just to retire early? No, that's not really the motive for me. The, the motive for me, the purpose of this whole thing is so that I can serve my spouse with it. I can serve my family with it, my kids, that this money and this stability and everything that this brings can help serve the people around me that are important to me, right? So that is the goal of it. Maybe other people have different goals, different uh, things that they're working towards there, but I think that it's important to do all of it. But I thought I'd read your comment and let other people listen to what you had to say. Okay, well, that's going to be all of it for today. I'll be able to answer more of your guys' questions soon. I have a lot of them queued up to go through. So I'll be answering them all throughout this week and, and into the holidays. So if you guys want to support the channel directly, you can join the Discord. Otherwise, I will talk to you guys next time.